Hello, everyone. How you doing? Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I know I have said this now over a hundred times on this on this podcast, but I genuinely mean it, and I think I get more passionate about it every time I I, I start off um, bringing in more guests. I have been so excited to have this opportunity to speak with our guest today, um, and I will have him introduce himself here in just a second. But um, some of you might be familiar with Stanford. You might be familiar with the D School. Um, I know that I came um, across uh, this person's amazing work through a mutual friend uh, that now is at the D School, Laura McBain, uh, who I met doing some learning a long time ago at High Tech High through the Masters of Creativity series. And from those moments there of coming across this guest, I have been just soaking up the insights of his work through his, his blogs and his newsletters and the Master of Creativity series, and now his latest book that he wrote uh, with a colleague of his called Idea Flow. And I am speaking about none other than Jeremy Utley. And so, Jeremy, welcome. I'm so excited, truly an honor to, to be able to uh, sit in this virtual space with you. And to kick things off, I just like, let's just get make sure everyone knows who you are. So who are you? What do you do? I said a little bit of that, you know, and, and what do you have going on? And I know, you, you know, that right there with a lot of people I've been talking to lately, that could be the whole episode. Uh, yeah, but just for some context right. of uh, all the awesome that you are. Yeah, no, it's first of all, thanks so much for having me, Aaron. It's awesome to be here. And uh, thank you to all the listeners for doing all you do for our children and for the future. Um, and I hope I can contribute in a meaningful way. I'm Jeremy uh, Utley. I lead executive education at the Stanford D School. And I've had the privilege of doing that for about 12 years. Prior to that, I was a management consultant and financial analyst and spent a little bit of time abroad. I actually thought that my life's work was going to be economic development. Perhaps it will be in the next chapter. I don't know. But I spent uh, spent some time in Bolivia, spent some time in Zambia, and some time in India, and came to Stanford Business School thinking I was going to you know, pivot my career towards economic development. And lo and behold, at the end of those two years, I had pivoted towards design and design thinking, which is very unexpected for me. Um, it's been an amazing journey. I've been at the D School now for over 13 years and you had a chance to teach a bunch of amazing graduate students, a bunch of amazing educators, uh, professionals in the uh, professional education context. And I couldn't be more delighted to talk about the book, which I co-wrote with my partner in crime, Perry Claybon, Idea Flow, which just came out last month. And I'm excited for it to make a contribution and make an impact in, in the education space and in our children's lives, especially. I have four small girls myself, so I am I, I have skin in the game, as they say, and I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny as you're, um, I've, I've followed your work, I've listened to a lot of podcasts you've been, you've been, been invited to. And so hearing your journey is, is interesting at the time. I mean, just yesterday, my son was at a scholarship day for a college and, you know, and he's trying to figure out what he wants to do. And I mean, there's that kind of external pressure of society now that when you graduate high school, you should know what to do. And we keep telling him like, you got a great head on your shoulders. Like life will take care of itself. Some of this, you just yeah. gotta get out. You gotta get out of the house. Like you just gotta go live a little bit. And so, you know, yeah. you're talking about all the places you've been and here you are not thinking of that. Um, I'm already making a mental note, like, Hey man, check this out this this book i've been reading non-stop here in the household you know he life life pivots and takes turns and the more, yeah. you, live, the more you learn so um no i think it's true i mean not to derail right there yeah, but i think no, it's, it's i think it's really i think it's really important that uh young people have permission to not know yeah because so much of school is about i have to have the answer what is like one of the you know what do you and i say when we see each other hey how's it going Right. right. Whatever. What do we say when we see a young person? What are you going to be when you grow up? Right. And just as as helpful as, hey, how's it going is, which maybe it's not that helpful. That's it's it's equally damaging, I think, to ask mm -hmm. young people, what are you going to be when you grow up? Who knows? Right. I, yeah. and, and, and asking the question imposes upon them the burden of having an answer. Yeah. And I really feel it does our young people a disservice to feel like they need to know. Nobody knows. It's, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> right, How in right. the world could your 17 or 18 year old son, right? It's, it's lunacy. 
And I think actually giving young folks permission to not know in a world where most of the time they have to know, they have to know, they have to know, they have to know is an incredible gift and and responsibility. Actually, I've, I've personally made a commitment to myself not to ask a young person, what do they want to be when they grow up? It's, I mean, I realize that's very small, right? But changing the world starts with yourself. And for me, one of the, one of my own personal mantras is don't be a hypocrite. You know, if, if I'm going to tell somebody else to do something, I need to do it myself. And I realized, wow, as I start interacting with young people and educators, I'm hearing this theme recur again and again and again, everybody needs to know what they're going to be when they grow up. And I fundamentally disagree with that because I experienced that pressure myself and how unhelpful it was myself. And so for me, I can't change the world, but I can change how I interact with young people. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so spot on. And in some ways what you just said reminds me of a lot of where I found a, a ton of connections with your book idea flow. I don't know if this is a, a, an intelligent segue or not, but like if let's, I want to, I, I want to hold on to what you just said, but I also didn't want to add another thought to it. And then I want to jump together. Please. The, the title of your book is idea flow. Um, and for those that haven't read the book there, I no doubt after this, they're going to want to go read it, but just the quick definition of idea flow. I mean, I know that's the, the premise of an entire book here. Um, but I think what we're just talking about right now with this idea of idea flow, there is uh, a, a sweet spot Um mm between the two in terms of thinking about that permission of not knowing and the permission of being able to explore to figure out, you know, what you might want to do. And so yes. let's, yes. let's hold on to that and let's come then bring back this idea of what is idea flow. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe the connection that you're making Aaron, I really like it, which is none of us or very few of us are mathematicians. I know you're, you, you support STEM, you know, instruction, things like that. Very few of us are are facing problems today that have only one right answer. And by the way, disturbingly, many mathematicians I know tell me that their problems don't have only one right answer, which is like <laughs> mind blowing, right? But you know, math seems like the one field where there is a right answer, right? But none of the problems we're facing have one right answer. And yet yeah. we approach them as if we're looking for the right answer, right? Yeah. And so you think about an email subject line, right? What do you do when you're sending an email? You think of the you know this the, the person and then you get to the subject line the first thing that comes to your mind you put it in and then you move on to write the email well there's no evidence whatsoever that suggests that the first idea you think of is the best idea or the best suited or the best solution right and yet for most of us when we think of an answer we stop looking that's actually that's known as the einstelling effect we cease the search when we think of what seems like a plausible answer, despite the fact that there's no evidence that the first answer that comes to our minds is the best. Well, the premise of idea flow is just that, that a volume of potential solutions is the way to find the best. And I, a very simple way to measure one's idea flow is to say, well, how many novel solutions can you generate to any given problem right now? I'll give you an example from my own home life that happened last night. I mentioned this in the, in the pre-taping, but we have, uh, we have four daughters, as I said, and last night there was a situation where, you know, through various circumstances, a window got broken and, you know, my kids, for whatever reason, the hospital forgot to give me the owner's manual. And so I, I show up at home and it's like, there's no, there's no glossary to turn to in the back of the book. What do you do when the kids break a window? Right. And so my wife and I are like trying to figure out how do we respond to this? We want it to be a learning moment, you know, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, the wind is not precious. People are, but yet irresponsibility, you got to take responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a perfect example of we're stuck going, what's the right answer? And the conversation started very haltingly. It's kind of what, if, no, what, no, well, we could no, you know, and that's how that's how we are with. You know, I'll think about almost any problem. It's just right. this continuous, simultaneous generate, evaluate, generate, evaluate. And one of the things we say to do in the book, and I found myself remembering last night. You know, as they say, I'm not only the president of Idea Flow, I'm also a <laughs> member. Right? It's like I need this stuff myself. And I said to my wife, "Hey, what if we do an idea quota?" And she's she she often will roll her eyes, you know. Don't yeah. try, to, right? She's often like, "We're not going to do your work thing right now, right?" But 
So I said, I'll do it. <laughs> I sit down and and basic the basic premise is come up with 10 ideas, 10 possible solutions. And I have I actually built a little chat bot for myself to help assist me with this so oh, that it's nice. like I get out of my head um, just for fun. And um no kidding, Aaron, the 10th idea was far and away better than any other ideas I had thought of. And I never would have thought of it if I hadn't pushed myself to a definitive number. Like I'm sitting there racking my brain. What's number 10? And I have all these different prompts that I'll use. But it was it was this, and I came to my wife, I said, you're never going to believe what idea number 10 is. And I told her and she's like, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, ideas one through four were all totally plausible. And if I had just succumbed to the Einstilling effect, to this cognitive tendency to just fixate on whatever early solution seems reasonable, I never would have pushed myself. I think we actually have a way better solution today. Yeah. And the only reason is because I said, you know what? This momentous occasion in our home is worth me taking an extra five minutes to kind of generate possible solutions. Yeah. Well, I mean, now we all got to know what, what what was the idea? What is what is this uh, this tenth idea that that okay. you both, that you both? <laughs> I was I was not planning on sharing this, but I will. It's it's not okay. a secret. Um, the tenth idea. So so the two older girls. There's two bigger girls, two littler girls, and the bigger girls are the ones who broke the window. And it became it was like this you know event. So every there's glass everywhere. It's we're all aware of the situation, and the little ones are wondering like, are they going to get to eat? Are they going to? What's the punishment going to be? Do they get dessert? You know all this yeah. stuff. And so the 10th idea was the big girls need to prepare a lesson mm. that they're going to teach their little sisters on why it's important to follow the house rules. Ah, nice. Yeah. I never would have thought of that. It's only yeah. when I pushed my, like I wasn't in lesson planning mode. Right. But something about the series of provocations that I had given myself, I ended up with, Oh yeah, that would be really powerful for them to have to represent why the, our house rules aren't arbitrary. We told them a lot of times, don't slam that door. That window will break. And then it's just, it happened, right? Yep. But now for them to be able to represent it, I don't know. By the way, jury's still out on whether it's a good idea, right? Yeah. We'll see what happens. But I was delighted because it wasn't something, it's far beyond the kind of, you know, the short the short list of go-to consequences. Right. Yeah, right. No, I love that. And I think, you know, I mean, what am I, I had a lot of takeaways of the book and even going through it here the second and third time. Um and not just prepping for this, but also like we're like I completely revamped. We're in the middle of a, a pretty large project right now on survival. Um, and we're we're doing some stuff for NASA with these with these elementary classrooms. And even I reshuffled the deck in terms of how we're gonna go into the sprint cycle as we're in the middle of of prototyping. Um, but what I love about the idea of my of the concept of idea flow is it's applicable everywhere. Like, you know, I mean, in, in the book, there's lots of right. awesome business examples of strategies and tools and tips and things of that worked and didn't work. Uh, I'm thinking of the education, how it fits. And here we are talking about your children and we all have, I mean, I have three children of my own and it's, it's, you know what I mean? And that's what I like about it is it's not something that's so um, like a little niche market that it only applies here. You know, if yeah. you are a, you know, the founder of Netflix or something along those lines, it's, you know, we can all apply it. Mm. And that's one of the things that I wanted to ask, um, I've listened to a lot of shows. I know a lot of people, and I got really fascinated too, is the subtitle, right? The subtitle of, of the Idea Flow book is the only business metric that matters. And I was thinking about it from the education lens and rethinking that a lot of times when I read books like this, I'll replace business with education. And I was thinking the only education yeah. metric that matters. And wow. I was curious about your insights on that, because if it is important for business, and we think about the K-12 system of getting kids to be able to think in these spaces where you might not have all the information, you might have limited supplies, you might not have all the things, but yet you're still, that's what makes humans so awesome is we can still generate these ideas, these creative constraints is what allows creativity to flourish. And so I wanted to ask you, you do do some teaching um, at the D school, you work with businesses, you, you've got a lot of experiences, you know, why do you think we need this type of, of thinking? I mean, not just businesses, but I'm thinking of it from the education lens. Yeah. And what really triggered this thought was there's that famous NASA study um, that a lot of people cite in terms of looking at um, the test results of, of, of creativity, imagination, 
and where it was like 98% of five-year-old children fell into the genius category of imagination. Um, and then that number drops to 12% by the time they're 15-year-olds. And wow. by adults, it's 2%. It doesn't mean that we'd lose imagination and creativity. Like, it's not like we just no longer become that, but there's a, a mindset, lots of things. So yeah. I'm just curious you get to see some really awesome stuff, work with people. And I'm looking at it from what can we do? So those ideas become even better. Uh, yeah. You know, where's your perception in, in that? I'm just curious from that kind of outside K-12 voice, but yet you still have feet in education and that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I mean, it gets to a core belief of ours, which is that creativity is an inherent human capacity. Um, and innovation is a, is a, is a skill. It's a capacity mm -hmm. that you, and I would say like all capacities, it can be developed and nurtured or neglected and atrophy. Mm -hmm. And what you see in that NASA study is natural atrophy, right? Yeah. You could, you could see the same thing in bicep mass among people who never bend their arms, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so, and you have to wonder, I mean, to, to just to take the metaphor, maybe a little bit too far, if you think yeah. about organizational structures as effectively arm splints for your imagination, mm. I like what that. happens if you remain in an arm splint for two decades, mm. that bicep is probably indistinguishable from the bone, right? Yeah. Not because you never had a bicep, but because you never had the opportunity to use it. And I think in a lot of organizational contexts, imagination is not something that's valued or nurtured or developed. And it, and we effectively put splints on people's imagination and then go, wow, you're not very creative. It's like, well, I was never called upon to exercise my creative faculties. And so I would say that just like any capacity that you want to nourish and you want to develop, it requires attention. You know, no one says, uh, I, I took a piano lesson, therefore I'm a pianist. Mm. Right, you know? right, right. Right. You know, uh, and by the way, and if a piano lesson doesn't go well, does it mean you're not? No, mm. it means you got to practice, right? I've never seen someone's first hundred piano lessons go well, right? <laughs> it's called, it's, it's, you got to work on it, right? Same with swimming, right? Yeah. Swimming, you have to, you don't like take a lesson and go drop me off in the Pacific Ocean. No, you got to do laps. You got to practice, right? It requires attention and intention. Creativity is the same way. And whereas a pianist has their scales and a swimmer has their laps, what is a creative person to do? You know, if you want to nurture the capacity, what do you do for most people that it's, I go to a hackathon, you know, I, it, which is like, you know, a recital you know, yeah. or a swim race. Right. But that's, and for me, the thing that's funny, you're, you know, a sprint is another kind of common vernacular, which I generally, we employ sprints often. We like the idea of a sprint, but you got a lot of people showing up to a sprint with Cheeto stains on their, you know, track suit because they've been like sitting on the couch eating Pringles. Yeah. Right. And then, right. And then they go to the sprint and they wonder why they pulled a hammy. Yeah, yeah. I know why you pulled a hammy. You haven't stretched <laughs> in 10 years, you know, and somebody says sprint, you know, and just because you got a shiny track suit, you decided to run, right? Right. Yet, there's something like that with creativity. What is the training regimen? Yeah. What are the stretches? What are the simple daily things that people can do to increase their likelihood of not hurting themselves when they sprint, right? And that's really, to me, it comes down to what's my attitude toward, is it a, you know, a gift reserved for few that is undevelopable, you know, then if so, neglect it because that's normal, right? But if it's a capacity that anyone can grow and develop and nurture, which I believe it is, then neglect it at your peril. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, as you're as you're talking through this, it's it's one of those things where I'm sure it happens in business all the time as well. But from the education lens, we have a lot of people that I think not because they're trying to sell snake oil or be manipulative by that. I think it's truly what they believe, but they, they stay out of one side of their mouth. We want creativity and innovative kids. We want, you know, prepare for jobs that don't exist. I mean, we say all the things of what our vision and mission statements are. And then 
we get into the logistics of a schedule and all we're doing is creating widgets or copies where everyone's coming out being the same from the machine of the education mm-hmm. system because there's so much pressure. We're trying to get 20 hours of curriculum into an eight-hour day. Um, so I'm not pointing fingers at the people in the in the system. The system needs a, a, a facelift, so to speak. But mm-hmm. we're not actually practicing what it is we say we, we're hoping for people or, or for our students to be able to do. Yeah. And so as you have that kind of business insight and things like that, for those that have that are successful in this work, how do they create space? Because I think one of the biggest hurdles in in the classroom setting is, yes, we want to do this, and it's there's not just like the how in terms of like teaching style and strategies, but I, I look at it as as how do we create space for it? And by space, I'm looking I, I don't not just physical space, uh, but I'm looking at like the mental space, the emotional space, the psychological safety space to be able to be creative and, and be vulnerable and sharing of ideas that may or may not work. Mm-hmm. How are you seeing organizations be intentional in building that space? Because that's one of the hardest things I think of like, if we can, if I can help people see how to develop space for it, yeah. there's the first foot in. Then we, in that space, we can kind of calibrate how to do this work and how to teach kids some of the the strategies and different ways of a lot of the techniques that you share in the book. Now we can bring to the fold. So like, yeah. like what do, what do you see? Or maybe it's what are, what are, what are people missing the target on as well? Maybe it's the flip side. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a big question. Um, a yeah. few thoughts come to mind immediately. One is what do we mean by creativity? Mm-hmm. I think that, and I agree with you, by the way, maybe yeah. as a precursor statement, the creativity and innovation is overly hyped as an important priority. And yet it is, as we've been saying, undernourished. Mm. So there, there's a big delta between those two. The level yep. of hype and the level of nourishment it actually gets are categorically different. So, yes. which is a big opportunity area. But then you go, okay, well, what does creativity mean? Does it mean artistry? You know, and so if creativity is synonymous with artistry, then the way to create space is to create space for the arts. I personally actually don't subscribe to that limited definition. I think that the arts are wonderful. I mean, that's not to say that arts education isn't important. It is incredibly important. But creativity isn't isn't artistry necessary, or it's not merely artistry. My favorite definition of creativity actually comes from a seventh grader in Ohio. She said, (laughs) creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. Oh, I like that. I like Which that. is really, really good. And I mean, it's it, it speaks to a profound kind of cognitive challenge that we all face, which is we want to do the first thing we think of, as we've already kind of discussed, the yeah. unstilling effect. But that doesn't. what I like about that definition is it doesn't have any regard to artistry. Doing more than the first thing you think of, you know, as as an example, Astro Teller is a, an incredibly innovative leader. Uh, he runs an organization called Google X. He's yep. the captain of moonshots at Google X. <laughs> And he told me in a, in a private conversation, he was mentioning how he learned to do math problems twice. <laughs> and he had a particular reason for that, which, you know, uh, we don't have time to go into, but he was taught from an early age to do math problems twice to make sure that he got the answer right. And I think actually there is a, there is a omen there <laughs> and he was ingrained <laughs> He had that. He had that sense of training. I need to do more than the first thing I think of in math, right? And to me, there's there are all sorts of ways. You know, Bob McKim is one of the you know one of the famous progenitors of the design program at Stanford. And anytime a student came to him for advice or for feedback, he would always say the same thing. He would say, "Show me three. I can't give you feedback on just one thing, right? Ooh, but I like to me, that. there's these, there's really valuable, simple way. Like you can place value on volume. You can place value on alternatives, even in the way you interact. And so that that's one thing. The other thing that I would mention too is when you say create space for creativity, and you know, you mentioned psychological safety. I think the other thing is understanding. What's needed for a group? There's one thing, which is individual creativity. There's another thing, which is now bring that to the group. And paradoxically, or seemingly kind of 
unexpectedly, the way that groups become creative is by everybody not being creative, but being obvious. Yes. And the safety though, the challenge is nobody wants to be the guy who says the obvious thing. So everybody's trying to be the creative one and that actually prevents the group from being creative. If instead, and, and the reason is, I mean, basically imagination is triggered by unexpected input to, you know, make like a kind of obvious statement. The thing that triggers our imagination is learning the thing that we didn't know, hearing yeah. the thing that we hadn't thought of, right? And the beauty of our different heads, like your head and my head is they're different and the background and the context and the the experiences and the worldview and the perspective, everything that you bring to this conversation is different from me. And what you say that's obvious to you is novel and creative to me because it wouldn't have occurred to me. And if I, in the context of this safe interaction, have, can have the courage and the freedom to say the thing that's obvious to me in response to what you say, chances are you're going to regard it as creative. Because it's not what you were thinking, right? So you see like a team that does really good creative work, they kind of spiral in these unexpected directions, not because every individual is wildly creative, but because every individual is totally safe to say what's obvious to them without being judged, without being evaluated. Um, And that's that's a big difference. And that's something I, I think whenever we think of creative, all of a sudden the burden grows. I gotta be creative, right? And that's a, that can almost be a heavy load and it, it need not be. Yeah. I mean, it just, I mean, you really just took the, the, the thought right out of my brain as, as you're, as I read, I was actually just reading that passage of that book this morning. Um, mm-hmm. And actually it was what is, was one of my huge adjustments to as in this, we're in the, we're in this, this, I call it the muckety muck. Like we're excited. We start building. We're taking the ideas from 2D to 3D and it's great, but this is the part where it kind of needs to be more functional and then things don't work. And, and as I read that part again, I see a couple things with that, that I'm reflecting on my own teaching is this idea of creativity. Um, it's just that like it, it puts on an unintentional pressure and I see whether I'm working with other educators or with students, there's a lot of, I think, low confidence or low self-esteem when it comes mm. to that kind of work. And when I read that line, it was to me, it was like the top three most powerful ideas in this book was how do I now come in and reframe this? Because for some of the kids that now maybe your idea was what people really gravitated to and like, Oh, Jeremy's the creative one. And no one hears my idea. It's coming back to this idea of obvious. And I see that with educators that I support as well. I'm like, you are phenomenal. And they're like, "Uh," I'm like, like, how do you do that? And and a lot of times they're just like, I don't know. It's just like what I do because Mm -hmm. they don't see the the genius in what they do in their craft. We don't get enough time for to bring educators together to see each other doing our our work, to be able to be acknowledged like, holy cow, that is a phenomenal idea. That subtle little obvious thing that you do all day, every day, just like you said, is the game changer for somebody else and then vice versa. I love that. Like, how do we, that's the work I'm going into today is like, I need everybody to be obvious today. Like what is, we don't need to layer in all the bells and whistles and, you know, throw glitter on everything. Like what are the obvious things to truly make sure that a solution is viable and it's actually solving a problem. And so I'm so glad we segued into that because that to me is, is like, was one of my ahas, my own teaching practices, uh, working with people, that idea of, being obvious. Um, I just love it. It's great. You know, it, it, the, the thing that is required for someone to be obvious is others have to have a positive disposition. Mm. They have to listen with positivity. And that's where this, this notion that at the D school, we call it deferring judgment. That's where that has to come in. Because we all are going the whole time, wait, are we going to do that crazy thing? You know, 
And if the whole time there's this kind of fear, what if we does saying yes mean we're going to do that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, then I'm kind of on guard and I'm always a little suspicious. But if we acknowledge, okay, right now is not the time. We're not making any selections. We're yeah. not making any decisions. The purpose of this moment is to generate. Later we will evaluate. But let's totally separate them. We're not doing, we're, no one's making any decisions, commissioning any resources, anything like that right now. We're just generating. Yeah. And if if that expectation is set, those parameters are set, then what you can do is you can have people listen with positivity and respond enthusiastically. Yeah. And what if we do this, right? Because the t- the the default tendency, I mean, maybe less so among children, but it but it changes quickly. Is is to say uh, I don't know mm-hmm. uh, that won't work because right. So our default, most of us, especially as adults, default to evaluation. Yeah. And so what you have to do is you actually have to defer that judgmental attitude and say just right now, you know, for the next twenty minutes or whatever, we're really going to work hard to not evaluate. And the best way to not evaluate is the old improvisers tool: just say yes and yeah. yes and and just force yourself. Yes. And we do a really fun activity at the D school where we say, oh, good. You know, <laughs> and you can do a warm up. This is hysterical, but you just grab something that, you know, here, for example. Okay, Aaron, I've got these uh, Clorox disinfecting wipes. I wanted to give them to you as a gift. You got to say, oh, good. And then say why you wanted this. Oh, good. Because I actually just spilled coffee on my pants. <laughs> okay. So that's great. <laughs> but now, so here's, here's the, um, Here's here's the flip. Okay. Um, now you're going to choose something that's bad and give it as a gift. And the other person has to say, oh, good, and say why well, it's a good thing. So is there something near you that's bad that you want to give me? I'm going to give you, Jeremy, this chewed up piece of gum that's in its wrapper. Oh, good. I was just needing something to distract my dog from scratching at the door. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but the, so So like there in that moment, it's like, chewed up gum in a wrapper is objectively a bad gift, right? right. Yeah. But the point is, it's if if I start with whatever Aaron says is the perfect thing, my job is to figure out what's perfect about it. Most of the time, our default is my job is to figure out what's wrong with this. Mm. Rather than, and what the generative mindset is, is my job is to figure out what's right with this. And so little phrases like that can help a lot, right? Saying, oh, good. Like if I know I'm going to say, oh, good. Now my mind is scrambling. What yeah. is the possible way to make it good, right? But it's that's that's the default. That's the disposition that we're trying to rewire in that generative moment. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and that, so that right there is a, a fascinating thing that um, this idea of like our default. Like that, we want to we default to critique or evaluate, and I we I see that with students too. But we've and I'm again now thinking out loud here. Like we've kind of created this. We'll we'll share an idea, and then we're going to welcome feedback, and we'll do our positives and questions and things like that. We try to do it a very we try to create an environment that's safe to say, hey, here's what we got. Um, you know, we want to make it better, and I think we've done that to a certain degree. But I find it interesting, just as you were talking. This idea of what we default to in our behaviors are oftentimes the things that I don't, detest might be too strong of a word, but they're the things that we don't like. And, you know, like I don't like to be evaluated. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a really cool part of your book mm-hmm. that I actually we're going to, I'm going to use tomorrow of like, as opposed to keep adding things, you know, the idea of subtraction and how yeah, many of powerful. us, when you ask someone, how are you doing? Like almost everybody in today's world is like, you know, I'm trying to keep my head above water. I'm so busy, like blah 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 blah. Because we just we think we have to keep keep up with this imaginary whatever it is, and we keep stacking all these things versus like, oh, yeah. what do we take away to have better value? Um, so I find that just as you're talking, I'm I'm kind of word vomiting right here, but like I find that so fascinating. Like our defaults are the very things that we often don't like. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why it's important to set some ground. I mean, that's one of the D school's big innovations in general is kind of codifying a little bit of the guardrails for mm. teams that are seeking to do something new. Because if without those guardrails, you're going to default to your, you know, behaviors that have been rewarded elsewhere. 
Yeah. That's, that's the truth that these behaviors, it's useful to be able to find the fault in things. It's sure. useful. If the numbers don't add up, we don't want to put them on a slide, right? But the mindset that says, I'm looking for, I'm, I'm doing a quick math check on all the numbers that may not be the right disposition to go into a brainstorm with, right? And so it's just, we call it being mindful of process, but it's being aware of what, you know, as what Whitman said, I contain multitudes, which me should show up to this meeting. Mm. Kind of depends. Yeah. What's the objective? What's going to serve the group the best? And it's not just all of my default behaviors that have been rewarded in all sorts of other other contexts with different objectives. I actually need to do the kind of metacognitive processing of what kind of mindset is going to help my team now. Yeah, I, I I love that. And you know, even as a as I continue to kind of think through stuff, um, and I love actually what you said earlier um, with Bob McKim about show me three. It's something that I really wish. I had that prompt in my toolbox about three weeks ago um, because one of the things that I see happen over and over again with students and part of the journey that we're trying to do, I mean, I'm talking with students all right now, I'm talking, we're talking elementary kids, like upper elementary. So they, yeah. they, they have a lot to learn just like as an adult. I learn every day right along with them. And we, this year, as we have tried to do some of these projects, even at a, at a, at a better, higher quality level, the thing that we see, I see happen over and over and over again is whatever their first idea is, they can't get away from it. And that's uh, really? an idea that really? comes across over and over again in your book mm. um, and lots of ways to get through that. But even this year, when we were very intentional of like, okay, but now let's do some divergent thinking. Let's, we need to come up with more ideas. Like they still couldn't get away from when we finally said, all right, we're going to move. We've got to move into action. They still all went here. And I don't know if that's right or wrong or indifferent, but I'm just curious, like, are there ways to do that? Because, well, I mean, the, the journey of learning then is they run with that idea and now every group has pivoted to something that is not that. So I think that's part of the discovery and learning and doing mm -hmm. research and building and making and, and you find out, well, maybe that wasn't the best idea. And maybe that's, it's an okay process. But right. I'm like, how do we help them evaluate, like, just like you said, the 10th idea of a broken window with the same kind of excitement as that first idea that they locked into, because that's, that's just how their brains are. And they don't, I don't say they don't have the capacity they do, but they haven't really been taught how to think through lots of variables. I and mean, that's one of right. our, our biggest goals with any of this work, especially with young kids is just, we want to help you learn how to think. And yes. in the end, I know if the prototype doesn't work, I, that part doesn't matter. It's the learning journey that really is the the the, the power of this. But that's what I, I was I was interested in. Like, what do you see in the D school with students or with your launch uh, work, where you get a lot of kids? I mean, a lot of the examples in here, like the the companies and stuff that come of that, are you know they're they're doing okay. You know, right. um, any insights to that? Is it okay to start there? Uh, is there other things you can do to to kind of backfill? I mean. I think I think there's two things I would say. One is it depends on what your expectation is. If your expectation is this is going to work, then you're probably toast. If your expectation is we're trying this to learn what works, then you then you may be more successful, right? So it's a matter of framing. Yeah. So with early stage idea generation, concept development, solutions, et cetera, you, no, no product survives contact with the customer, right? Just like no <laughs> battle plan survives contact with the enemy. So, and, and rarely do solutions survive contact with the problem, right? So having the expectation of iteration, we are going to discover what the right answer is by doing and so what we need is not an answer, but an approach. Mm -hmm. And an approach requires a first answer, knowing that it is just your first answer, right? Yeah. So if you can kind of emphasize that approach orientation rather than answer orientation, I, that that gets to the how to think thing. The other way, the other like thought that comes to my mind, I can, and I can't remember, it's, you know, I have so many of these conversations lately. So that's what happens when you write a book, all of a sudden everybody, it's like going to your own wedding. Everybody <laughs> wants to talk to you. It's yeah. like, there's no way for my mind to remember all the aunts and uncles right. and who said what, right. right? But someone told me this story recently, which is really great of, uh, an exercise in a, in a business context where the leader would just ask, and what if we couldn't do that? Mm. What would we do? And then, you know, the team would come up and what if for whatever reason that was a totally unviable way of approaching this, 
what will we do? Mm. And there's, and I wonder whether there's like a cycle of just pushing what, okay. So what, you know, it's like, come up with 10 ideas, whatever your favorite idea is, put it up there. Now cross it out with a thick Sharpie. You are not allowed to do that. What do you do next? Right. But there could be some of that. The challenge is, I would say that the, you know, I don't, I don't know what the research suggests on this. I think that approach is challenging because then all subsequent effort there's a question of, well, what if I did that other thing? Would that have worked? And so I'm probably more of an advocate. I'm probably more of a fan of emphasizing the value of an approach over answer because what that instills is not like a a doubt as to whether I would have just won if I had done the the first thing I thought of. Um, Because I, 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 fear that perhaps people would just spend the whole time thinking, uh, I did have the right answer, but you know, my teacher wouldn't let me do it. Right. Yeah. Well, I like that. I mean, even as I like, what if you couldn't do that and you, you broke that down a couple of times and then he came back full circle and then you stacked on there, the old good idea. So now yeah. here's our original idea. Well, what if we couldn't do that? You know, it's almost kind of like a five Y exercise, uh, uh-huh. but just uh-huh. kind of cascading totally. a different framework. And then whole group celebration would be like, all right, so here's here's what our group came up with. And then people responded with, oh, good. And then right. you could kind of reaffirm back in a positive. And then where does that trajectory go? You know, you kind of go, this is what I've got. Well, it's probably going to be really hard and frustrating for kids. So it kind of feels like a little bit of a, a bummer maybe, but then you're going to share your idea and then you get lots of praise and then boy, where does that go? Um, right. So right. that's, I, yeah, I, I, I really like that. And I mean, it reminds me there's a, you've got a pass in your book too. Well, several times around up about prototypes and, you know, prototyping is this just generation of ideas. And uh, recently I, I recorded a conversation with uh, Scott Whithoff on for the, the D school book on this is a prototype. And oh, just that cool. idea of like the noun and verb approach to the idea of prototype just really opened my eyes where it's not just like a, a tangible thing, but it's a verb of doing and thinking. Mm. And I, I just, that to me is the exciting thing of that mindset for, for kids anyways, of like, man, we're just, we're just cranking out ideas. We're just, you know, we want to find if things work. We want to get some data. Like it's not all right. about like having this perfect, this perfect thing. Um, right. If the perfect thing doesn't exist, you know, in our brain, our idea seems flawless. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part's been, been been really good. And I like that idea of generating questions because it, it leads into what I think is my favorite line or sentence in the entire book. And maybe it's just because it's like the passion of mine in education. Oh, wow. Okay, is, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, yeah, yeah. I The one I love um, is that curiosity can pull you where discipline and willpower would otherwise have to push. And this idea of like sustained inquiry, um, you know, a lot of times we we say passion, but sometimes I feel like that gets overused a little bit. But like, yeah. what are we what are we curious about? And let's go, let's go explore that that rabbit hole and see where it takes us. And just again, coming back to earlier this conversation around space, giving kids time and space to be curious and yeah. get going in that, and then get out of their way. Um, I just, I love it because we stress so much in society, hard work and that willpower and working through things. And that is obviously some important skills, but there's that curiosity piece that I think, again, kind of gets undermined in the the race to be first, you know, so to well, speak, whatever first is. Well, one of the challenges, Aaron, is that care is essential to innovation. Mm. Um, care, I would say is a little bit of a different word from curiosity, but the the same basic idea. Apathy is an enemy. If you don't care, don't bother. And I think with a lot of problems, there's a, there's a, the, the problem is they don't care about the answer. (laughs) That's why they don't persist. That's why they don't dig. That's why they, right. I don't care. And if, and if the grade is the only thing driving motivation, that's extrinsic. It's not, that's not going to sustain a certain degree of effort, right? The things that people care about, and you know, I do feel passion is a little bit overemphasized, perhaps. I mean, I'm a, you know, Cal Newport, you know, his whole thing about be so good that they can't ignore you, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, so I think, but everything in balance. I do believe there's so many valuable tools. 
um, especially as in, as it regards our subconscious mind kind of churning on problems and things like that, that only get unlocked and, um, and uh, unleashed mm. by care. Yes. And so to me, you know, finding a problem that you really care about solving and is, is essential. And if you look at great, you know, innovative organizations, you could take Google's 20% time or even three and before that they've got 15% time, but it's interesting to see there are mechanisms to acknowledge. We want people to do something, not that they should do, but that they want to do Yeah, that they care about doing. And if you look at some of the fascinating innovations that came out of, you know, take Google or, or 3M or other places, it comes from these streams of work that individuals had the uh, had the bandwidth to pursue um, independent of their kind of quote unquote roles and responsibilities. And I wonder what a 20% time looks like in a classroom context. Forget a school right. context. In the school, right. you go, oh, there's no way, right? What yeah. about your class? Yeah. Is there a 20% project in class, right? Um, and to me, that's a, that's a fascinating mechanism to encourage that curiosity, carving out space to say, what do you want to, and the answer can't be nothing. Yeah. Right. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, even if I, I think about this current project we're doing on survival and, you know, we, we started off, we're looking at past, present and future, and I won't go into all the detail of the project, but we are right now innovating for, um, being able to successfully survive on the moon or Mars based on the Artemis project that NASA's got going on. And the beauty of it is, is we're not currently living up there, so you can't go find the answer. But there are answers that do exist looking at what we do here on Earth in the past. Long story short, when we start that, not every kid cares about space. But as we continue to bring in these voices and we start to explore, explore these unknown territories of things we've never thought about before, the kids get really like their 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 passions come out and so it's it's not a, a surprise to us that this year in the context of the small amount of time these kids have lived on earth and what they've had to go through half of our projects are on mental health and feeling good and dealing with isolation wow. is super super important to them and you think about it they've made half their elementary half their schooling has been isolation with covid right uh, right right so it's 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 helping them be like well i mean okay i don't really care about rockets but now these kids are so like the kids that are in that they're seeing the connection of like what's that mean for astronauts or people that are going to have to be in this little tiny craft to like say to mars for three years like right. they have empathy thing. for them and mental health is real and then they're going oh I kind of live that like that matters to me. Um, That's cool. That yeah. is the, the cool thing is not, we're not trying to tell these kids go work for NASA, but one, there's an opportunity there. If you are of interest and two, like your passions are you, you think that you're interested in, they're all over and you can f make that a career. If you so choose or keep it a hobby or keep it as a side gig, like our goal is to help them figure that out, but to plant those seeds of who they are and who they want to be. And that's what I really like, you know, as you're talking, like that's what we're trying to help people understand is like for them to learn more about themselves and build that confidence and awareness as, as, as they undergo how to think. And that's yeah. the beauty of it all. Yeah. Yeah. You, you are an utterly unique individual when it comes to what are you interested in, you know, and, and cultivating that sense of curiosity, I think is, is really, you know, going down rabbit holes yeah. and, and allowing yourself to wonder about things, I think is, there's not nearly enough space afforded to that, you know, because it seems so unproductive, or it's difficult to measure. And we don't, as they say, right, you, you manage what you measure. Yeah, because there's not really a way to measure the impact of that. We don't do it. But for me, I mean, stories really help, you know, and, and knowing that Thomas Edison took a nap, for example, helps me nap with confidence. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you look at like, uh, you know, amazing breakthrough thinkers like Richard Feynman, you know, great mm -hmm. example. He's doing, you know, really serious physics work on his PhD and he takes several days as he describes in his memoir, he takes several days to play with ants in his apartment. Right, right. He's just fascinated by how they're moving and giving it's like this guy, he's in the middle, he's under a deadline yeah. to write a thesis, you know, and yet he got 
you just got carried away by an interest, by a curiosity. And, and there, to me, when I hear and see examples like that, I go, Oh, there's value there. Yes. Smart people do this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so good. I mean, a lot of that is, you know, giving ourselves permission to, to, to take those timeouts or to have that space just to, you know, kind of reset the brain and look at it with different perspective, even has nothing directly related to maybe like the work that we're doing. And so I think that's, that's so spot on. And, um, that's how we started the conversation, by the way, Aaron, was that word permission. You know, we started with permission to not know. Yeah. And we're kind of wrapping here with this idea of permission to explore. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a really powerful word, I think. I, I agree. Yeah. It's I it's to me, there's a, a huge, a huge barrier or a huge lift that can be um released if we give ourselves permission to to do the things that we're curious about and explore the things that we are interested in. And sometimes we are our own worst gatekeeper uh, when it comes to, you know, dabbing our toe in the water of what it is that we are, or are, are fascinated learning more about, you know, we, yeah. we, we worry about what others might think. And so there's, I think there's a lot to unpack with that word for sure. Um, yeah. Jamie, this has been phenomenal. Gosh, so phenomenal. I'm so jazzed. I actually, I, I just, I can't wait to actually go back and listen to this and all the things I've just learned. And actually I'm sitting there going, I need to change my lesson again here before I go in. Uh, but I just <laughs> iteration, want to, my friend. Iteration. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Your book has had a profound impact on me and my thinking, um, the work that you and, and Perry have done in idea flow. And so I so appreciate that. And then hopefully that ripple effect that goes into classrooms and, and schools that I get to support and things of that nature, you know, just continues to exponentially uh, make some, some changes. So I cannot thank you enough, truly an honor to uh, virtually meet you. I've sat on many of your live lessons and videos of masters of creativity, but to have this conversation one-on-one is uh really up there high ranking in my uh awesome things that i can tell people i've i've, I've talked to that guy so my pleasure yes yeah, i appreciate and your work i love hearing from people i doing. mean you know it's easy to reach out reach out on twitter or linkedin or you know my website jeremyoutley.design it's easy to get in touch and we've got a we actually i don't know if you've seen it, aaron we have a bonus chapter on our book website called how to think like bezos and jobs yeah. So if you yeah. go to ideaflow.design you can pull that down for free and we're easy to get in touch with but we love you know, to us, hearing from people of, of how they've implemented some of these concepts into their lives or their classrooms or businesses is the most rewarding thing. So please stay in touch. And I'm, I'm really eager to hear how it goes with your iterated lesson plan. Oh, yeah, I can't. I can't wait. So I appreciate it. And everybody that listening to the show, um, you guys all know we'll get all these links in the show notes for you to check out the book and the bonus chapter and all the ways to find Jeremy's work and the D school and, and all the things that we've talked about today. So Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And I know it's going to have a great impact on all our listeners today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos.